Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land, and uh, welcome back to another episode of the Pat's Pints podcast. Today, I'm very excited because it marks the first time that we're going to go international by welcoming Nick Smith from Steam Machine Brewing up in the northeast of England. Welcome to the show, my friend. Excellent. Well, good afternoon and good evening, gentlemen. Good afternoon to you, Nick. It's very good to hear your voice. It's good to hear your voice. (laughs) How was uh, business today? Business is good. We're doing a lot of, like, I guess, like, the American model is you guys do a lot of very, very local stuff and you know, you have a big population to be able to sell lots of beer to. Whereas kind of over here, a lot of our stuff is to pub trade and that's all gone. Um, and opening up as a pub as well is a massive part of our trade and we, we can't do that either at the moment. But despite that, we're doing a lot of off-sales um, like direct to people's houses and people coming here. And we're doing a lot of food as well because food takeaways are allowed to operate and um, our hometown it isn't very shit hot on delicious food so we're kind of filling a bit of a niche there as well really so yeah i'm enjoying myself if i'm if i'm honest apart from all the death and stuff that's a bit bad that's yeah yeah, that's the only bad part we've been doing home deliveries as well so it's fun to get out and drop a beer on somebody's front porch it's nice the way they cradle it like a lost child or something isn't it when you hand it over (laughs) oh yeah grown men with like faces of happiness (laughs) that's good (laughs) given your perspective from the other side of the Atlantic, I thought this would be a really good chance to explore one of the most fabled, enduring, and popular styles of beer uh, in the Pantheon, and that would be the India Pale Ale. We're going to try and go from the historical origins all the way up to the modern day, and uh, there's a chance we might even still be standing when we finish this podcast. Are you suggesting we're going to drink beer whilst we do this podcast, Pat? That is the style that we tend to go for, yes. Well, if you're going to lead me astray, I guess I'll have to follow footsteps. What can I do? What can I do? Yeah, you'll have to. Yes. (laughs) And in fact, we're going to get started with you because you have access to some kinds of IPAs that are pretty much impossible to get here in the middle of Ohio. I'm staring at one now. It's nice and cold and it is looking at me in the face, but I'm not going to open it just yet. I'm going to wait till we get to that bit. Build a little bit of anticipation. It, it'll make it all the more sweeter when we get into it. Yeah, definitely. I should say at the outset that for historical accuracy on the IPA style, I was not around in the 18th century, as old as I look sometimes. <laughs> so I am relying uh, heavily on a book by a common colleague of ours, and that would be Roger Protz, one of the premier beer writers in, in the world, really. Just as it turns out, the three of us had the pleasure of spending a rather memorable night drinking what some would call historical beers about two years ago at Steam Machine Brewing. Isn't that right, Nick? Wow, two years ago. Wow, time flies. It Um, does. We did. Um, Historical beers, we think the oldest one was possibly post-World War I. It was a very interesting evening. Most of the beers were all right. 
Um, I guess that's all we can say about those historical beers. I mean, not many of them tasted particularly toxic. One of them, to me, did taste like Harry Potter's room under the stairs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think that was the really old one. That was the Vox one, I believe, the pre-war one. I think that's Um, right, yeah. That one really took you back, didn't it? That was uh, was quite an experience. Yeah, it was pretty awful. It was a little bit like a saute of band-aids and dirty socks with just a little bit of vinegar drizzled over the top i would say that's pretty good you forgot the spider webs but otherwise yeah i'm, I'm all I'm all, <laughs> I'm all behind that yeah the first time i met you i thought you were trying to kill me and then once you got the <laughs> fresh beers out i knew that you were a friend yeah i fed you as well <laughs> that's right i tell you your fresh beers and bread were never so welcome <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I often hear that. So yes, that's where we were all at um, Steam Machine Brewery here in the northeast of England, and we seem to have washed down the old beers, um, the hundred-year-old beers, with some of uh, our fresh beers between us. And uh, Roger Protz, a gentleman and a scholar, and uh, a wonderful book as well, I might add. So yeah, absolutely. It's called IPA: A Legend in Our Own Time if anybody is so inspired to go out and do their own research. The other book, um, which I'm sure you're about to mention, Pat, is uh, obviously Mitch Steele's IPA, which I do believe he draws heavily from Roger Prutz in the the writing of that book as well. And he credits Roger Prutz. And Roger even told us on that night, I do believe, that when he met Mitch Steele, they, they talked a lot and shared resources on the history of the IPA for both of those books, I do believe. Yeah, that's another great book on the IPA. And if anybody doesn't know, of course, Mitch Steele has a long history in brewing, but maybe best known when he was the brewmaster at Stone Brewing. But mm-hmm. I think before that, he was with Anheuser-Busch. And now I think he's got his own brewery down in Georgia. Nick, I thought it would be good for the listeners here in the States and in Ohio, if you could just tell them a little bit about Steam Machine and also maybe about the beautiful, lovely part of England where you live. Oh, wow. Which bit do I start with? I guess briefly just to describe British brewing scene, you know, like things in England are a lot smaller and quaint, I guess, than than over there in America. My wife and I started Steam Machine Brewing Company. It was born from like a lot of breweries, from a, a love of home brewing and from wanting to have a, a kind of alternative lifestyle. My background is... I was a science and chemistry teacher at a high school level and my wife is Turkish who was a private fitness instructor and sports instructor back in Istanbul. Um, after travelling the world together we were keen to kind of put our experiences of beer and good wine and all the, the wonderful things that you taste when you're travelling the world into some kind of creative output and I'd been a homebrewer at the time for about 10 years and my wife Gulam when when she met me was absolutely fascinated that you could make beer that it wasn't just an industrial process and this very much matches in with her kind of very rural eastern turkey upbringing where everything is homemade the bread the cheese the yogurt um you know they have uh, wild fermentations of like barley bricks that sun bake on the roof for uh, winter food and stuff like that so it was all very easily adaptable in her head but it was just something that they just don't do in rural turkeys make beer so that's where it was born from and we came back to the northeast of england where i'm from 
and we set up a very small brewery in a place about the size of a garage. We are now five years old and year on year we have expanded and grown. We're now in our third premises. Um, we're five years into the business and I guess what's unusual about it is we own everything. You know, a lot of businesses are in debt for bank loans and things like that, but everything about the brewery is ours and a lot of stuff is upcycled, a lot of stuff is secondhand used vessels and a lot of stuff is just what people would call junk. But it works and we make beer and I guess what we do wouldn't be considered unusual in America in terms that we produce very diverse beers inspired by historical brewing and from our own experimental practices. But in the UK, the prevalence is just for a few styles of beer, really. So I think we sit outside the box on the UK market for producing things which are extremely diverse and eclectic. And the northeast in general is um it's the poorer part of england it is a, a very rural part of england that went through the industrial revolution it can often be quite a bleak place with the wind constantly blowing but it's also a very beautiful place and a lot of history up here and the people up here are very different than i, I think the rest of england you know we're, we're a very welcoming we're very open we're very huggy people and um yeah. Obviously, I'm biased, but we're, we're the best people of England. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I will have to say, and many people who listen to the show will know that, you know, I lived uh, very close to you for 11 months in, in Durham, and I, I just thought it was wonderful. It, it is just a, a lovely part of the country, and the people were very friendly to me everywhere that I went. So I have nothing but fond memories of that. We're a people with not very much happiness what more could you ask for exactly and beer and beer well that's right you need to have beer i think those walk hand in hand (laughs) yeah yeah definitely (laughs) now speaking of that nick while we kind of talk about where ipa came from maybe you could describe the ipa that you have yeah, I mean, it is staring me in the face. So just very briefly describe the British brewing scene from my youth. You know, we very much had a macro brewing scene around the British Isles, the same as the USA. And really in the 80s and 90s is when the micro brewery scene started to happen. Rather than craft breweries, you, you have people almost the size of homebrew kits, to be fair. You, you're talking about people with a few hundred litre vessels, and that's what most microbreweries of the UK in the 90s, that's what they were producing at the time, a few hundred litres. Um, the beer I've got in front of me is from Durham Brewery, who are based in a little village called Bourbon, just outside of Durham. Durham is our little capital city. Um, city's a, a strong word to use, but it's got a cathedral, so that's what we call it. Pat, you lived in Durham, but it is more like a village, isn't it? Yeah, I guess the the population of Durham must be 50,000, but it doesn't seem that big. It's a very old city. You've got the River Weir comes down and makes this loop around the city, and you have this massive cathedral that's, uh, how old is it now, 900 years old or something like that? It's been there for a long time. It's, it's a lovely city but you might call it a a town in some ways in the sense yeah it is a medieval city durham brewery they were one of the first microbreweries if not the first microbrewery in the northeast in the 90s it was started by two teachers 
And what sets them apart is where most breweries in the 90s were really just producing English bitters, is the, the, the owners of this brewery, what they did was that they were very keen to look into the history of beer, and they took influences from Belgian brewing, um, and they took influence from historic British brewing, and where most people were only producing beers of 3-4%, they were cracking out Belgian-style beers of 7-8%. They had one of the first Imperial Russian stouts of England for 20-30 years, uh, clocking in at 10%. And so they were one of the first people that when I started drinking and if I saw a Durham beer, it always, you know, even though they were from my neck of the woods, if I saw one of their beers, it, it would be something that would excite me. And this beer is called Bombay 3000 and they've called it an English IPA. The description, it's a 500ml bottle, so just under a pint, or is that a pint in America? I think your pints are a bit smaller than ours, not that I'm comparing. This is Guile 3000 of theirs. It was brewed for their anniversary. Um, it's a 7% beer, and the description says that real IPA was invented by the English to survive the ship to India and provide the British Raj with nutritious beer. IPA was sparkling, clear, and bitter, clean and refreshing. Brewed to mark our 3000th brew, this beer celebrates the spicy Golding's hops and very pale malt, that is the hallmark of the original IPA. It sounds now, lovely. Yeah. I'm excited by this because um, Phil, who's one of our brewers, um, who you've met, Pat. Um, I know Phil, yes. I bought one of these for Phil when I went to pick this up. He had his last night, and uh, he said he didn't shut up about it to his wife for about half an hour until she told him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> So I am very excited about this. I think our wives are here to keep us humble, Nick. Yeah, that's true. Okay, here we go, gentlemen. It's pouring a beautiful straw colour, very pale indeed. It's, um, you know, when I spoke to um, Ellie, the owner of Durham Brewery, who is the daughter of the original founders now, because it's passed on to the next generation, and she said this is more or less 100% pale malt, like Marisotta, with just a tiny bit of wheat. The hops, even though it's mostly golding, she said they used a little bit of a more modern British hop called Flyer, which I'd never heard of before, actually. Hmm. I, I haven't heard of that either. I had to look it up. Um, it's a relatively recent hop um, that's meant to give unusual flavours, and it can give for a hop toffee and caramel, allegedly. So, Interesting. Interesting. On the nose, just decanting into my sniffing glass, because that's uh, the posh kind of British gentleman that I am. <laughs> I always find Golding smells like very... Um, you, you get that kind of noble character from Golding's. I think that there's not much between a kind of German noble hop and Golding's, to be fair. Like, we've brewed a lager with um, Golding's before. I mean, you can smell the Goldings. It just smells like old world hops. Grassy, slightly herbal. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. Now, what kind of bitterness do you have on that beer, Nick? Um, it doesn't start too bitter. You get the, the kind of um, the malt complexity that, you know, if you use a good quality pale malt, like Marisotta or something else, you get that kind of nice little hint of malt sweetness not too grainy um, not mm. too crackery not too biscuity but just that kind of like nice melding kind of malt flavour and then it's towards the end of the palate that the, the bitterness hits you 
If anything, it's not too unreminiscent of a, a kind of West Coast IPA, but without the piney, resinous, and modern fruity punch. That's an interesting take, yeah, to think about that very old IPA having a lot of commonalities with more modern takes, although with very different hops, which make a big difference when you're talking about a beer that's heavily hopped. Yeah, it's very dry. Anyone who loves the West Coast IPA who's interested in um, historic beers, if they had this, they would not be disappointed at all. It's a beautiful looking beer, gentlemen. I wish I could share it with you. Oh, I'm so jealous right now. This is a celebration of their 3,000th brew. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, so they've been that's at it for a moment. Yeah, that's more than 2,000. <laughs> yes, exactly, 1,000 more. <laughs> Pat, we're getting into math again on this podcast. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> I, I'm not, unfortunately, despite my science background. I mean, that's what spreadsheets are for, right? Um, this is a, it's also a bottle condition beer, I must add, which is extremely common in the UK to bottle condition and can condition and to keg condition our beers. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, you don't see much keg conditioning over here, I don't believe. Now, I should say that Although we can't drink this beer with you now, Mark and I did on an earlier podcast have a Durham Brewing beer, and it was the Bombay 106, uh, which I believe was named after a certain regiment of the East India Trading Company or something like that. Uh, yes. So we have, we have some familiarity, and I suspect that the rest are pretty similar. I, I love that beer. Uh, they no longer make it, unfortunately. Um, oh, that's a pity. What was the ABV of that? Do you remember? Was This is 7%. So the 106 is 7%. Uh, it is 7%. Yeah, okay. it was 7%. I looked it up. And was it Golding's beer? Or was it Golding's hop, sorry? Yeah, it was. It was a full-bodied base for generous quantities of Golding's hops. Bitterness is pronounced, spicy, and resinous. Uh, dry hoppings with extra Golding before bottling ensures a full aroma and rich character of bitterness. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's a very similar beer. Yeah. From memory, it's a very similar beer. Nick, since you're the only Englishman on the podcast, what can you tell us about the origins of IPA? They started in London, as I understand. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of like myths and stuff float around about the IPA, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, semantics. But in my mind, um, and from the research which I've done previously, and the reading which I've done, and the old men I've talked to in the pub, which is also invaluable, obviously, someone in a pub told me, so it must be true, um, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like it comes historically, even before the 1700s, um, it comes from the massive increase in the use of hops in the Georgian era from the 1600s to the 1800s. It kind of comes politically from an influx of Dutch brewers in the 1500s and then post the Glorious Revolution, which is when like some Dutch guy came over and declared himself king of britain but it wasn't an invasion because we were british and like we haven't been invaded since 1066 yeah but uh <laughs> the glorious revolution was completely different 
it was all peaceful and um it wasn't at all so and <laughs> the dutch brought with them their love of hops and, and the usage of hops throughout the 1600s to 1800s in british beers increased massively if you look at recipes for beer throughout that time you know they increased by pounds and pounds and pounds of hops and all beers were hopped you know the porters were hopped the younger beers were hopped the older beers were hopped i think what it comes down to is most people um, put the historic origin of the IPA to the beer that was being brewed in London in the 1700s that was being shipped out to India. The thing is, though, that beer at the time was all aged. It's my understanding that a lot of beer underwent uh, you know, a lacto-fermentation. Uh, it had a brett fermentation, and so beer was better when it was aged. It wasn't till nearly 100 years later we had fresh, younger beer to be drunk. And scrupulous brewers realised if they got contracts to send their beer to India that that ageing could actually be done on the vessels and save themselves warehouse space on the docks so they could get the beer out faster, hop it in the barrel and send it out to India. That is my understanding historically. That's a very clever business acumen. Uh... Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it? Now, if I understand correctly from Roger's book, he mentions that like what got sent to India that was very popular descended from something he calls an October beer, which would have been, to my reckoning, something akin to a barley wine, sort of very strong, very heavily hopped. Do you have any point of reference on that, Nick? That is exactly what I've read. Um, it's interesting you say barley wine, and I think barley wines in England and America deviated. And I think to American listeners, you put a lot more hops in your barley wines. I think that is very much akin to what original IPAs, certainly when they left the brewery, would have tasted like. What they would have tasted like later after the time in the barrel and that the aging process with the dry hops, you know, leaves a lot to the imagination. But yeah, you're right. And, you know, we've put some notes between us and it's very often stated that Hodgson's Bow Brewery in London from 1752 were the creators of the IPA. But um, there's a lot of conflicting data about that. A lot of other people were making this style of beer, hopped October beers, highly hopped beers, like greater hops than we'd be using now in the boil and that sometimes they get mislabeled as the creators where actually they're just the ones who won the government contract. Yeah, that's probably correct. I mean, it's not like they created the style. They just somehow rose to prominence as the ones who had the, the biggest share of the market going to India. Yes, exactly, yeah. And I think it was, I believe, and I, I don't know if it, I think it was in Mitch Steele's History of the IPA, that or Story of the IPA, can't remember what it's called history of the ipa that they talk about the descriptors of it and their beer wasn't even the very good one their beer was all right <laughs> which i find quite okay. interesting i quite i quite like that <laughs> so, the government contract won out for the all right tasting beer <laughs> <laughs> that sounds just like government contracts still work today yeah exactly yeah that rings true to me <laughs> <laughs> Well, we might say a little bit about the journey. So as I understand the journey, I mean, we could go on and on about it, but maybe just a few key points. 
it probably took three or four months. The ships had to cross the equator twice to get mm-hmm. from England to India. And these barrels of beer were down in the hold of the ship. So they underwent wide temperature swings from what I've read, anywhere from 50 Fahrenheit to mid 80 Fahrenheit. They're being tossed around. It's not exactly what people who make hazy IPAs today would like to see their beer go through, is it? No, it's not particularly. And um, actually, you've just reminded me anecdotally that Durham Brewery made a barrel-aged IPA recently, which, you know, certainly wouldn't win many awards in like the craft circles. But I I loved that. And uh, they did an oak barrel-aged IPA where what they did is they rolled it around whenever they were passing. They just like kicked the oak barrels around whenever they were passing the cold room brought it out in the heat of summer to stand outside in the car park, put it back in the cold room and created a, a beautiful IPA that was aged in oak to recreate that kind of journey, which I thought was pretty cool. I thought, what a thing to do. Oh, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Since you bring that up, of course, that makes us think that these beers probably had oak character to them. They probably had a little bit of Britannomyces in them, I mean, I would expect. I would imagine so. There's some tasting notes I've got from IPAs from the 1800s that they were tart, dry, flavoursome, bitter and sparkling like the finest of champagnes, which I think it really interests, especially with the tartness, which, you know, is to be expected, Mm. I guess, with the the bacteria, which no doubt lived in the barrels. And like you say, the temperature fluctuations to aid that secondary fermentation along. That would also tend to explain the high levels of attenuation, right? I mean, those... Uh, yeah. Brett beers can get very dry, for example. Also, the beers before they left England, they would have been dry hopped and they also mm-hmm. would have been primed, right? Sugar would have been added. So there was a fermentation in the barrel while it was on this long journey. Yeah, I imagine it could have got messy in the holds, to be honest. I would think that's a, a distinct possibility. Yeah, some of the <laughs> barrels probably did not make it. <laughs> At some point, then things kind of shifted north, right? So. IPAs became more closely associated with Burton than with London. Yes. It's all to do with water, the differences between the hard water of Burton, which by no means the wells of all these Burton breweries were the same, but there were literally hundreds of breweries sprung up around Burton. A lot of people moved their breweries to Burton and dug their wells and had their water analysed. So there was a chemist, I believe he was called Charles Vincent, in the 1800s who was a water chemist who started analyzing the sulfates the sulfites the chlorides in the water and he was the one who was going around saying oh yeah you want to dig your well here this this is good water my friends but i believe that it was all based on taste perception so the beers which you know as these East India government contracts eased and you had massive migrations of people back from India, back to the United Kingdom, looking for the same beer, which, and these beers were called pale ales brewed for the India market or India pale ales, and they had like a a lot of other names, and they were looking for that same taste. And the ones which won out just like anywhere else were the ones from the Trent Valley, and they were the ones which just people preferred. And I guess the water there, when you talk about the mineral content, unlike the water in London, which is a little bit alkaline, if I understand correctly, the water in Burton would have been rich in sulfates and calcium and magnesium, 
And what, what would that do to the taste of the beer? If you're not a chemist and you just drink it, how would that change the perception of the beer? It increases hot perception. It increases bitterness perception. It increases the refreshing qualities of the beer. Whereas, you know, the likes of porters, which London is famous for, just to slip this in there, most of the beer going to India was actually porters and stouts, not these pale ales. Um, it's perfect for London because of the, like you say, the alkalinity um, of London water actually kind of neutralizes the acidity of the roasted, the, the roasted malts. Yeah, so it makes it a more palatable, easier drinking, quaffing beer. You know, the hard water and the mineralogy of the burnt water just makes it a more refreshing, thirst quenching product. Which, you know, if you are a top dollar, as it were, customer, you know, a classy middle to upper class person who were the people drinking these pale ales, and you want something that's refreshing in this heat of India. You don't want the common man's dark porter nonsense. They were in the tropics after all, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a, it's a hard day, you know, beating people up and, you know, exploiting <laughs> people from other nations. You need something refreshing at the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be doing that on uh, English Mild, for example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, maybe let's kind of move forward a little bit, but let's go from those days. Let's go from Victorian England to, I don't know, something like uh, John Major England. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> it was not necessarily a prosperous time for IPA. I mean, the IPA did not fare very well in England over the 20th century. Is that no, an accurate I, view? That's, that's true. And even though I don't think it was John Major's fault, particularly, he's not <laughs> of the political party that you know I'm a fan of. But, you know, I don't think he wrecked IPAs. British and American brewing history comes hand in hand. Um, in the 1800s, nearly all American brewing was being done with British hops. And for your cheaper beers, both America and the UK, we were using American hops, bizarrely. Actually, it's that not is- bizarrely, because if you look at the price of hops at the moment, Jesus, I mean, like, British hops in Britain are still more expensive than some of the more favourite American hops. I don't know how they get away with it, but there we go. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah. We have yeah, more land. Maybe there's more fields. There's Maybe. a lot of I mean, hop farmers here. I just look at the Goldings price and say, yeah, I like Goldings, but I prefer Centennial more, and it's cheaper. Yeah. What am I going to choose? It's not going to be Goldings. Sorry. Sorry, my beloved Goldings, but there we are. And um, So the time that American and British brewing diverts is um, you has unfortunately a little blip in your history where people told people they weren't allowed to drink beer which seems a bit unfortunate to me <laughs> i think we can all agree on that yeah it doesn't yeah. seem right at all no so but what that did actually is the recipe books were closed the brewery stopped and i've read the numbers before of how many thousands of american breweries just shut pretty much overnight some of them turned into syrup and sugar refineries and things like that, but the majority of them just finished altogether. Um, that didn't happen in the UK, even though we did have like the temperance movement was very active within the government and they wanted to stop 
so much like commoners rolling around in the streets like dogs and cats and stuff like that apparently that's frowned upon i don't know why um, <laughs> <laughs> if you ever look at like there's a wonderful ink sketch called gin alley um, of a caricature of london of people just like being sloshed really which i think is quite wonderful of the era but um what did it for british brewing was uh world war one and world war two now there were also you know a lot more major things which were a problem in world war one and world war two um that you know crimes against humanity and other things yeah. but you know we're brewers so you know we're talking about the beer here i'm sure other people can talk about the humanitarian aspect and rationing was introduced and uh, gravities of beer certain beers were, were pretty much made illegal um, you weren't allowed to use so much wheat and barley in the beer because it was needed for food it was needed for bread this is why we have things like um am i allowed to name beers and slag them off on this is that allowed yeah. please do it's a bit unprofessional isn't it but here we go green king ipa have you ever either of you had the misfortune of trying that beer I have tried it when I was in Britain once or twice. Myself as well. It was something that tasted like a very light pub bitter when I tried it. Yeah. I mean, that's polite, Mark. Certainly not an IPA. So my little local village pub where I was from, it was always this week's guest beer on cask. This week's guest beer, Green King IPA, every bloody (laughs) week. Jesus. Oh, my God. I hate that beer. It's three point something percent. You can't call that an IPA in anyone's book, but historically, that would have been up in the six, seven, eight percents, like all other IPAs of well renown. And that rationing, what it did was it just did for British brewing. Good beers fell out of fashion, and instead, these watered down things. That's what happened. And and to my childhood of uh, I shouldn't say childhood. That makes me sound like I was a teenage binge drinker. I wasn't. I was very well behaved. I was a very well raised young man. Um, you know, and when I was at university, you would be very lucky to find a beer that was above 4%. Um, it was a rare treat for Christmas. Wow. And that was yeah. the state of British beer. And of course, if you take the alcohol level down to 4%, um, and I don't know what the hopping rates were, I mean, it's a bitter at that point, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, so the only thing that was the difference between uh, when I was learning how to drink beer between an English bitter and an IPA was an IPA was more bitter and it might creep up to 5%, but usually 4.7, and that that was an IPA. It was a more bitter, refreshing English bitter. Um, It was also probably a little bit paler. A lot of English bitters were tended to be amber to slightly brown colour. Although yeah. um, when I was at university, there was a it's an awful trend which is still continuing that English bitters became more and more golden, and we lost the the kind of malt character to them to make something that was basically a flat lager. Ah, yeah, that's not a great trend, is it? It's not a great trend at all, Pat. It's a very upsetting trend. I mean, I'm a grown man, but I still might cry when I think back. <laughs> now, now, if you think about your university days, what? If you would seek it out, would it have been possible to find anywhere something that would have been a more traditional IPA made in the UK? I think, yes, there certainly would have been. I wasn't savvy enough at the time to have found it. Um, But 
<laughs> like when I was in my mid twenties, I, I discovered a bottle of a beer by Meantime Brewing, who, unfortunately, like all good breweries, were like bought out and like by macro people. But what they did was they brought back a British IPA of a high percentage. I don't know how percentage, like eight percent odd. And that was 100% Fuggles Golding's beer in a champagne bottle. And it was corked and it was fantastic. Um, Also, we were getting imports. I mean, I do recall in my third year university trying for the very first time Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And it was on cask, believe it or not, which was a bit weird. Um, Wow. I I would like to try that. I don't know how. Maybe it was on a keg that they'd flattened and then stuck on the hand pull. (laughs) I I remember at the time that it was more than £3 a pint. Just to put that into perspective, most beers in our bar here are like £4 to £7 a pint, and this was more than £3 a pint. And I remember being outraged, and I remember like, what? More than £3? What has it got gold in it? What makes this beer so special? Anyway, it was delicious. I really enjoyed it. Okay, I think this is a good point to cut in and uh, wrap up, let's say, around the first 200 years of the IPA. But we're not done yet because we're going to come back with Nick and a part two. That's right. We're going to bring the IPA over to America. And then I think we're going to actually finally get to have a beer, Pat. It's about time. I would agree. So with the craft brew movement here in the U.S. of A., largely starting by replicating some of the British styles... We cover the onset of replication, East Coast versus West Coast, IBU wars, the hazies of New England, and a myriad of other IPA interpretations. And we'll also get Nick's take on how a beer that started in the UK eventually came to be influenced by American craft brewing today. It's going to be a good listen, and I encourage everyone to come back for part two. Yeah, yeah. Well, cheers for this episode. Cheers, my friend. Yep, see you on part two, and uh, thanks for listening to part one of the history of IPA. IPA.